Welcome back to Roshcast for episode eight. We're only a couple of weeks away from Christmas, which means the in-service is fast approaching. So let's make the most of the coming weeks to get as much review in as possible before the holiday break. Absolutely. I'll start you off with a quick review from last week. In an RH-negative woman who is having a spontaneous abortion, what dose of RH immunoglobulin is indicated? Well, there are two important doses to remember here. Prior to 12 weeks gestation, 50 micrograms should be given, and after 12 weeks gestation, 300 micrograms should be given. You may also recall that administration can be delayed for up to 72 hours. And which class of drugs are classically known to cause dystonic reactions? That would be the typical antipsychotic drugs like haloperidol. 50% of reactions occur within the first 48 hours after administration, and 90% occur within 5 days. IV or IM, diphenhydramine or benzodiazepine are the treatments of choice. Great. And what's the target pH for irrigation of the eye? For eye irrigation, the target pH should be between 7.0 and 7.2, but remember to not delay irrigation to check the pH before starting irrigation. And which class of antihyperglycemics commonly lead to recurrent episodes of hypoglycemia? Well, that would be the sulfonylureals, as they stimulate the islet beta cells to secrete more insulin, increase the sensitivity of peripheral tissues to insulin, and have a prolonged half-life. I think that's enough review for this week, so let's jump into the new material. All right, the first question is on orthopedics, something we've barely touched so far. Which of the following patients requires emergent orthopedic consultation? Is it A, a 36-year-old woman with a femur fracture and distal cyanosis, B, a 58-year-old man with extension-based chronic low back pain and leg numbness, C, a 75-year-old ambulatory woman with tibial osteosarcoma, or D, an 18-year-old man with a reduced sacral alla fracture and a blood pressure of 130 over 86? The answer here is definitely choice A. A 36-year-old with a femur fracture and distal cyanosis, this is the only answer choice with neurovascular compromise. New neurovascular compromise always requires an emergent consultation. Right. And such fractures in young adults are often secondary to high-energy collisions, so don't be distracted by the obvious broken bone and forget to do a thorough primary and secondary survey once the limb has been stabilized. While we're talking about it, can you name some of the other indications for emergent orthopedics consultation? Sure. In addition, suspected compartment syndrome, all open fractures, displaced unstable fractures, and irreducible fractures require emergent consultation. That's right. And let's review the other answer choices here that definitely don't portray any of the scenarios you just listed. Answer choice B, chronic back pain, is just that. It's chronic. Answer choice C, osteosarcoma, is an unfortunate but also a chronic diagnosis that needs urgent outpatient workup and not an emergent consultation. And lastly, choice D, a reduced sacral ala fracture, is also a stable injury, so outpatient follow-up is necessary. Perfect. Let's move on to the next question. A 12-year-old boy presents to the ED with headache, vomiting, and lethargy for two days. He had a ventricular peritoneal shunt placed for hydrocephalus one year ago. What is the most likely cause of his shunt malfunction? Is it A, abdominal pseudocyst formation, B, choroid plexus obstruction, C, loculation, D, mechanical failure, or E, slit ventricle syndrome? Tough question here. I know that VP shunt obstruction occurs proximally more frequently than distally, so I'm going to go with choice B, choroid plexus obstruction. Exactly. Proximal VP shunt obstruction typically occurs due to either choroid plexus obstruction or increased protein within the CSF. This obstruction typically leads to symptoms of increased ICP, such as headache, nausea, vomiting, lethargy, ataxia, and cranial nerve palsies. This definitely requires a neurosurgical consultation for shunt tapping and measurement of the opening pressures. 
And while we're reviewing VP shunts, can you go through the other answer choices here, since this isn't something we deal with all the time? Sure. Choice A, an abdominal pseudocyst, typically doesn't cause complications until the pseudocyst is large enough to cause abdominal pain, which isn't really how this child is presenting. Loculations can occur, but they're pretty rare. Mechanical failure can occur in several ways, either due to shunt fracture, shunt disconnection, or shunt migration. Shunt fractures occur over a long period of time due to degradation. Shunt disconnection typically occurs shortly after surgery. Lastly, slit ventricle syndrome occurs when the ventricles are overdrained and they collapse on the proximal shunt orifice. This only occurs in about 5% of patients with shunts and is usually self-limiting as the fluid reaccumulates relieving the occlusion. In a patient with cyclical symptoms, you should probably be suspicious for slit ventricle syndrome. Wow, tons to remember there. We'll have to go over it again during the rapid review. Next up, a hand trauma question. A 25-year-old man presents to the emergency department after being in an altercation at a music concert. On exam, you know what must be a fight bite over his third knuckle, despite his proclamation that he was, quote, minding his own business. Which of the following organisms is of most concern? Is it A, capnocytophagia canimorsis? Is it B, cercopithecine herpes virus? Is it C, Eichenella carodens? Or is it D, Pastorella multocida? This is an easy one that I remember from medical school and step one studying. In human bites, we're concerned for Eichenella. Don't forget that human bites are often more serious than dog or cat bites due to their typical locations and the different collections of bacteria. In fact, in all fight bites overlying a metacarpal, a hand surgery console is necessary as the patient may have to go to the OR for a washout. Exactly. And although the question didn't ask about it, let's review the treatment. Generally, human bites should not undergo closure, as the most commonly implicated bacteria are strep, staph, and the gram-negative anaerobe Eichenella carodens. Augmentin is typically the first-line antibiotic of choice. For a patient with an established infection, IV antibiotics, such as ampicillin, sulbactam, cefoxitin, or piptazo may also be used. Right. Additionally, the other two bacteria mentioned this question, capnocytophaga and pastorella, are bacteria that are commonly implicated in either dog or cat bites. Cercopithecine herpes virus is a virus most frequently isolated in macaque monkeys, so it's definitely not the right answer here. Let's move back to the PDD for a pediatric emergency. Which of these children with hematuria needs admission to the hospital? Is it A, a 10-year-old boy with a recent sore throat and tea-colored urine, his UA is notable for microscopic hematuria and proteinuria, B, a 12-year-old girl with dysuria and pink urine who has a UA positive for nitrites, C, a 6-year-old boy with nausea, vomiting, and bloody diarrhea who has a UA that shows microscopic hematuria and hyaline casts, his blood tests are notable for a high white count, low hemoglobin, and low platelets. Or is it D, an 8-year-old girl with diffuse mild edema, T-colored urine, and normal urine output, who has a UA that shows microscopic hematuria and proteinuria? Well, I think we should go over each of the answers individually, but let's start out with what I believe is the right answer, choice C. A child with nausea, vomiting, bloody diarrhea, and a UA with hematuria and hyaline casts, as well as a CBC with elevated white count, low hemoglobin, and low platelets. This child definitely has hemolytic uremic syndrome as marked by the triad of renal failure, thrombocytopenia, and microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. Hemolytic uremic syndrome most commonly results from antibiotic treatment of children suffering from an E. coli O157H7 infection. As the E. coli die, a highly virulent shiga-like toxin is released that leads to the hemolysis and subsequent renal failure this child is experiencing. Although care is ultimately supportive, this little guy will definitely need admission. Great. Let me review the other answer choices here. 
A child with a sore throat with T-colored urine and microscopic hematuria and proteinuria is likely suffering from post-infectious glomerular nephritis. This occurs due to immune complex deposition in the glomeruli. As long as these children have a normal blood pressure, they can follow up as an outpatient with a nephrologist. Choice B, a child with abdominal pain, dysuria, and frequency just needs antibiotics for her simple cystitis. Lastly, choice D, an 8-year-old with mild edema, T-colored urine, and a UA with microscopic hematuria and proteinuria, likely represents a manifestation of nephrotic syndrome. In patients with only mild to moderate edema with a normal blood pressure and no respiratory symptoms, they can be safely discharged home with outpatient nephrology follow-up as the treatment is typically corticosteroids. Great review. Hematuria is a common complaint with a huge differential. Let's do a rapid-fire hematuria association review before we move on to the next question. Colicky flank pain with hematuria. Colicky flank pain and hematuria? That's got to be nephrolithiasis. How about red-colored urine that is positive for heme but negative for RBCs? Positive for heme and negative for RBCs? That's classic rhabdomyolysis. Hematuria with dysuria and frequency. Just like we talked about above, dysuria frequency, that's got to be cystitis. Hematuria with hearing loss. A little bit less common here, but that's Alport syndrome. All right, how about hematuria and hemoptysis? Well, the hemoptysis is far more scary, but together we're worried about good pasture syndrome. How about a recent immigrant from a developing country who has hematuria? Although just about anything's on the differential here, the classic association would be schistosomiasis. Hematuria, nephrotic syndrome, and flank pain. Hematuria, nephrotic syndrome, and flank pain. This is a bit of a stretch, but I think that's renal vein thrombosis. Excellent. And how about hematuria with a recent URI? Well, just as we talked about above, that would be post-infectious glomerulonephritis, or IgA nephropathy. Let's move on to the next question. Which of the following is a cyanotic heart lesion? Is it A, an atrial septal defect, or B, patent ductus arteriosus, C, tricuspid atresia, or D, ventricular septal defect? The answer here is choice C, tricuspid atresia. There's actually a handy mnemonic you can use to remember the five causes of congenital cyanotic heart disease. Just think of the numbers one to five. One is for truncus arteriosus, in which two vessels join to make one. Two is for transposition of the great vessels, in which the two great vessels are switched. Three is for tricuspid atresia. Remember three for tricuspid. Four is for the four defects of Tetralogy of Fallot. And lastly, five is for the five letters of total anomalous pulmonary vascular return. That's simple enough to remember. And the other answer choices here are all diseases with left to right shunt or acyanotic congenital heart lesions. These diseases usually present with congestive heart failure within the first six months of life, not with cyanosis. Looks like we have time for one last question. A 68-year-old man on warfarin for his AFib presents to the ED after a fall down 12 stairs. His head CT shows a large subdural hematoma. His INR is 4.5. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? Is it A, cryoprecipitate, B, fresh frozen plasma, C, packed red blood cells, or D, platelets? So in this question, we're looking to reverse the patient's warfarin, and we do so by using choice B, FFP. Since this patient is also having a serious and potentially life-threatening bleed, he would also need IV vitamin K, although that's not a choice here. That's right. Let me review the other answer choices. Cryoprecipitate is typically reserved for patients with low fibrinogen, such as those in DIC. Red blood cells are given to correct anemia. And lastly, platelets are given to those with induced platelet dysfunction, such as those on aspirin or clopidogrel. Although not explicitly addressed in this question, let me summarize the important take-home point. FFP, PCC, or recombinant factor 7A should be given to any acutely bleeding patient who's been known to take warfarin. 
Platelet transfusion and DDAVP should both be given to elderly patients acutely bleeding who are known to take aspirin. All right, Nachi, I think that wraps up all the new material for this week. Let's go on to the rapid review. Emergent orthopedics consultation is needed for any fracture with neurovascular compromise, suspected compartment syndromes, all open fractures, and all displaced unstable fractures or irreducible fractures. VP shunt obstruction occurs more commonly proximally than distally. Proximal VP shunt obstruction occurs due to choroid plexus obstruction or increased protein within the CSF. Distal VP shunt obstruction occurs due to abdominal pseudocyst formation, which typically presents with abdominal pain due to the large size of the cyst. With respect to VP shunt malfunction, slit ventricle syndrome occurs when the ventricles are overdrained and they collapse, obstructing the proximal shunt orifice. With the reaccumulation of fluid, the obstruction is relieved. Patients typically present with cyclical symptoms. In treating patients with fight bites, we are concerned for iconella contamination. In fight bites overlying the metacarpal, a hand surgery consultation is absolutely necessary. In human bites, Augmentin is typically the first-line antibiotic of choice. For established infections, IV antibiotics such as ampicillin sylbactam, cefoxitin, or piperacillin tazobactam may be used. In a child with mild to moderate edema, with a normal blood pressure and no respiratory symptoms, the child can safely be discharged home without patient nephrology follow-up as the treatment is typically corticosteroids. Hematuria with hearing loss is associated with Alport syndrome. Hematuria and hemoptysis is associated with Goodpasture syndrome. There are five important cyanotic and genital heart lesions to remember. Remember the numbers one through five. One is for truncus arteriosus, in which the two vessels join to make one. Two is for transposition of the great vessels, in which the two great vessels are switched. Three is for tricuspid atresia. Remember three for tricuspid. Four is for the four defects associated with tetralogy of Fallot. And lastly, five is for the five letters of total anomalous pulmonary vascular return. Atrial septal defect, patent ductus arteriosus, and ventricular septal defects are all acyanotic heart lesions or lesions with a left-to-right shunt. Children with such lesions typically present with congestive heart failure by six months of life. In any patient on warfarin with a life-threatening bleed, FFP, PCC, or recombinant factor 7A should be given. In a patient on chronic aspirin with a life-threatening bleed, DDAVP should be given in addition to platelets. Well done. So that wraps up Roshcast episode eight. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the blog at roshreview.com forward slash blog for some high yield images that accompany these same questions. And while you're there, leave us some feedback so we can make it even better for you all. Thanks and see you guys next week. Bye.